0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome,
1: welcome, welcome, welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Canadian
0: voters jumped back onto the Trudeau Liberals' bandwagon by a significant percentage. Daryl Bricker, president and CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, has that news coming up. A terrible week for Donald Trump, even many of his supporters took strong exception to his news conference with Vladimir Putin, and there was more. Nicole Rodriguez Garcia and her boyfriend were hiking in the Rockies, west of Whistler. He said turn around very slowly, and behind her was a full-grown grizzly, about five feet behind her. Listen to the story. Michelle Rampel is the Conservative Party immigration critic, and she is under fire from the left because she will not back up on this issue of Canada's borders. I spoke with her. So let's get at this issue of the polling. Uh, Canadian voters jumping back onto the Trudeau-Liberal bandwagon, at least currently, in a global news poll conducted by Ipsos Public Affairs. The Liberals rose in the polls. And uh, the conservatives slid in the polls. Daryl Bricker is the president and CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. He joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Daryl, thank you very much uh, for the time. And was your question to Canadians about popularity of Mr. Trudeau's popularity of political parties, was it specifically about the tariff battle between the U.S. administration and Canada?
2: Not in this particular poll, but we we have asked that before, so we do know that there's been a bit of a rallying to the flag. Now, just to to caution here, just because uh, people are rallying to the flag, and the flag right now is currently represented by our prime minister, because he obviously is leading the country, doesn't mean that there's necessarily going to be a huge partisan breakthrough from the Liberal Party as a result of this. So, uh, yes, we're seeing some some short-term effect, I think, from uh, Donald Trump's... uh, um, machinations on the issue of trade and the difficulties that this government's been having with them. But there's also another part that you haven't mentioned that's got, come along with this. And that's been the decline of uh, or the, the distance that we're getting from the Ontario provincial election. And there was a lot of bleed over between the popularity of the Doug Ford government and the progressive conservative brand and the federal conservative brand. That seems to getting, be getting balanced out a bit. But interestingly enough, there's also been some bleed over from the NDP brand. And so what's happened is the federal NDPs come down a little bit as a result of, of uh, uh, the provincial campaign as well. So the further we get away from it, the more it's about federal politics and the less it is about provincial politics.
0: Okay, so if I understand correctly, after the Ontario provincial election, the impact of the Ontario election did then also impact the conservative party, uh, the federal conservative party, and the federal NDP
2: for a while. Right. And, and I know all my friends in Western Canada and other parts of the country get upset when I say, uh, you know, say something like that and the importance of Ontario in determining our national political outcomes, but it really does have a big impact on what people think about the federal political parties.
0: What's the mood in Western Canada?
2: A lot of anger. A lot of anger. A sense that, uh, well, it depends on the province you go to. So you'd have to separate the prairies. From, uh, the, from British Columbia. British Columbia looks a bit more like Central Canada in terms of the way it understands politics, but the Prairie Provinces, the three Prairie Provinces, are definitely uh, against what the federal government is doing, starting with the carbon tax. Uh, but British Columbia is more divided. Now, the interesting thing is, British Columbia is the only province in Canada in which the NDP currently leads. So if you add up those four provinces, the Liberals aren't ahead in any of them.
0: Isn't that interesting? Uh, So how would that, if an election were held today, and uh, your numbers say the liberals would receive 39% of the popular vote, which is, as far as I can recall, getting pretty close to majority government, uh, if you just look at the actual, that number, uh, what impact would this, the fact that in the four provinces the liberals don't have the lead west of Manitoba, what impact would that have on a federal election?
2: Well, they also don't have the lead in Ontario. We still have the, of course, the Conservative yeah, yeah. Party yeah. ahead in Ontario. Yeah. So what we know is even though Ontario, it's like a couple of points ahead for the Conservatives, for them to be a couple of points ahead means that they're probably doing pretty well in the 905. And even with the Liberals at 39 and the, uh, the Federal Conservatives at 32, it's a lot closer race than those numbers would suggest. Hmm. And it's merely as a result of the distribution of the vote. The Liberals are doing extremely well in the province of Quebec right now. And they're doing extremely well in Atlantic Canada. Those are not great places to be doing extremely well. I, I have to, you know, remind people all the time that there's 78 seats in the province of, of Quebec and there's 70 seats in the Greater Toronto Area.
0: Yeah, that speaks volumes, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. And as
2: long as we have a first past the post uh, system, um, the, the way that our our our, uh, our elections run now, um, you, know, you have to have an efficient vote. Mm-hmm. And at the moment, uh, the um, the the Conservatives actually have an efficient vote. The Liberals have votes clustered in places that don't necessarily uh, do as much for them in terms of seats as they, they would need in order to win comfortably. And particularly given that the NDP is not below... I'll give you two numbers here. Since the NDP is not below 20 nationally, which is what the Lib, the the, NDP, or the Liberals need to win more progressive seats, that's a problem for them. The other problem that they've got is that the Bloc Québécois is not doing well enough in the province of Quebec. So even though the Liberals at forty they're running. They're winning a bunch of seats in places like Montreal by an awful lot, but the Conservatives are actually over 20 in Quebec, which means that, that they're actually going to be winning a fair number of seats too. And in those circumstances, even 37-32 is probably a race that's pretty close.
0: It does get complicated, doesn't it? I mean, it, it takes a yeah, lot of I'm understanding what the trends are.
2: For your listeners, it is complicated. Yeah. It is complicated, but, I mean, those are, those are the realities. Yeah. And so I think people can come to some superficial conclusions based on the polling, saying that, uh, you know, the Liberals have, you know, rebounded. They definitely have. Uh, The Prime Minister's uh, personal approval levels have definitely gone up. Uh, Nobody knows who the leader of the opposition is right now, which is a big problem for the Conservatives. But even given all of that, 39-32, which is actually the results of the last election campaign, are really not as close as they are, are, are closer than they were back in October 2015.
1: Hit
0: up Apple Podcast or Google Play and subscribe to the Roy Green Show podcast. The Roy you want, when you want it. Back to Daryl Bricker, the CEO and president of Ipsos Public Affairs on the polling they did uh, of Canadians for Global News. Uh, Daryl, if I can just look at this number, 55% of Canadians approve Justin Trudeau's government now. Uh, that's up, if I have this correctly, it's up 5% over last year at this time? Yes, it is. Is that a good number for a governing party to have just over a year out from the next election?
2: Very good number. Uh, so what we've found, and we've looked at elections all over the world, almost 1,000 elections, and incumbent governments that have uh, a uh, approval level of 40% or better tend to get reelected over 60% of the time. So if you move it up to 55, this far out, um, and they are an incumbent. And incumbents have big advantages. They have a really strong advantage going into the next election campaign.
0: Hmm. Summertime is a time, and I read this also in the Global News story, and it was um, it was uh, Ipsos that pointed this out. Summertime is a time when the governing party gets a lot more attention than does the official opposition or even a third position or third-place party. How much does that factor into the numbers that you received this time around?
2: Well I think it factors into a certain uh, a certain amount. I mean, uh, the truth is, it's, it's not just a summertime phenomena, although it tends to peak in the summer because the House is, is out and there is no question period for the Ottawa Press Gallery to report on. But uh, you have to take into account the fact that the level of awareness and the, uh, the um, ubiquitousness of this prime minister, even, you know, at any time of the year, including the summertime, is way above what you would see for any of the leaders of the opposition. So it's almost like an unfair fight in terms of getting attention. But the problem that the Conservatives have and the NDP have is that neither one of their leaders has any level of really of awareness with Canadians at all. So uh, it's, it's everything that you're seeing and happening in politics right now is a reaction to the government and to the political agenda, as opposed to a reaction to options. So people are just saying yay or nay to the government and to the prime minister. They're not really considering what their other choices might be. That might change as we get closer to the election campaign, but I really do believe that the next election will be a referendum on Justin Trudeau.
0: So that being the case, and I just viscerally absolutely agree with you based on what I hear on on this program. Um, If you look at the different demographics. If you look at the different generations, anywhere from the baby boomers to the millennials, I think the millennials and the most recent who will be voting. The last uh, millennials to be born will probably be voting in their first election, if I have that correctly. How does it break down generationally as far as support and non-support for Justin Trudeau's concerned?
2: Well, older voters tend to like uh, the opposition parties better. Uh, than younger voters. Um, and uh, so the, the Prime Minister has his highest approval among younger voters. And the problem, of course, for the Liberals, if that's where your support is, uh, is that they are uh, what I would call episodic in terms of their appearance at the, uh, at the, uh, at the ballot. So, for example, in this last provincial campaign, uh, there was an increase of about 8% in terms of turnout uh, of voting for Doug Ford, but it was their parents showing up more than they normally show up as opposed to the millennials. Back in 2015, federal political support was up by about 8% in terms of turnout, went from 60 to 68, and that was millennials showing up. So it just depends on who shows up. And depending on the nature of the campaign, and the um, uh, affinity of the people who are uh, running as the leaders of those parties, you can either have one group show up or the other. So as we move into 2019, the real question on the table is whether or not Justin Trudeau can again motiv- motivate those millennials to show up. Because it's not just a question of whether or not they support him or not, it's whether they're going to show up at the ballot box to support him.
0: Yeah. Whether or not there's something more interesting to do on the 21st of October than vote.
2: Yeah, and that has been the really, really interesting thing that you've seen, not just in Canadian politics, but it was a big factor in the U.S. election. It was a big factor in the Brexit election. It's been a big factor in many of the populist upsets that we've been seeing around the world uh, over the space of the last two, three, four years has been that differential turnout. Based on things like education, whether or not it's people in the city that show up versus people in the suburbs, in rural areas, whether it's more um, uh, younger people or older people, those differential turnouts by demographic group have been hugely influential in terms of the outcome of the last election, uh, the last several election campaigns. In Ontario, last time around, it was commuters and 905, uh, people living in the 905, that showed up and won the election for uh, for Doug Ford.
0: My seat of the pants feeling is that the whole populist movement is still hasn't reached its maximum velocity yet and hasn't have, reached its maximum participation yet?
2: Well, it's because we're going through a very big sociological change in the world, mm-hmm. and a lot of it relates to combination of culture and demography. So as you see more and more people... Uh, move to the city and the suburbs in Canada, for example uh, we 've seen a dramatic contraction of the number of people who are living in rural and small town areas in this country, and more and more people living to moving to the suburbs and to the downtowns well the The, the interesting thing about that is that the values that you see in places like suburban ridings. Uh, and also the challenges, the life challenges that those people are facing are very, very different in, along with their demography than the people who are living downtown. And that's where we're starting to see this cleavage. It's between the downtown progressives and the suburban, rural, small-town, more conservative voters in the country.
0: Okay. It's always uh, informative and, and really interesting to have conversation with you, Daryl. And I appreciate the time. Thank you. Always appreciate it, too. Thanks, Roy. Take care. Daryl Bricker, written some fabulous books as well about... Uh, about uh, our country and about people and how the shifts are taking place in uh, Canada, CEO of and president of Ipsos Public Affairs.
1: The Roy Green Show podcast, ready and waiting for you anywhere, anytime. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or Google Play today.
0: Even the uh, great supporters of Donald Trump have uh, questions about him this week, particularly after the news conference with Vladimir Putin, here's what uh, the President of the United States tweeted earlier today, and this has to do with uh, the fact that his former lawyer apparently taped a conversation about paying off or providing money to a porn actress who was or wasn't um, a companion of Mr. Trump. Inconceivable that the government would break into a lawyer's office early in the morning, almost unheard of. Even more inconceivable that a lawyer would tape a client totally unheard of and perhaps illegal. The good news is that your favorite president did nothing wrong. So there, there's, a, there's a lot being said about about Mr. Trump this week. And uh, some of it was way over the top as a... Um, there's a member of Congress from the Memphis area who tweeted that what he was waiting for was for the army to, uh, to get involved. The military should interject that there essentially should be a coup and the military should remove the president. And that got a lot of response. And, of course, the congressman from Memphis, who's the same guy who said that Peter struck should – I don't know how to pronounce that guy's name should get a purple heart for testifying before a a House committee, former FBI agent who had a... uh, I guess he's... I don't know if he's still an FBI agent. It gets confusing after a while. They get fired, they get moved, they get this, they get that. Anyway, this was the same congressman who said that Stroke should get a purple heart. So, yeah, I I was thinking about... How would a member of the American military view what's been going on? Because Mr. Trump is, of course, the commander-in-chief, as previously was Barack Obama, the commander-in-chief. And uh, I spoke many times during the tenure of Barack Obama as president of the United States with Colonel Peter Mansour, former executive officer to General David Petraeus, during the surge in Iraq. And author of *Surge*, my journey with General David Petraeus, and the remaking of the Iraq War. It's a great book. It really is a great book. Um, And and I've got to. And I know that. I mean, there were times when we spoke with uh, Colonel Mansour, when I just absolutely could not avoid understanding that he was frustrated with what Barack Obama was doing, unhappy with what the former president was up to. And now I'm curious what the uh, colonel, the former colonel, feels about what. It's happened in the last week with the current president. Colonel Mansoor, good to have you back with us, and thank you for interrupting your vacation to talk to us.
3: Oh, my pleasure, Roy. No problem.
0: So what is your impression, first, if I may ask you this, what's your impression of the Trump-Putin news conference? As you were watching that, what did you come away with?
3: I, I think it was totally outrageous. I think the, the president uh, has a, a man crush on Vladimir Putin. I don't know why. Uh, There's obviously a lot of speculation over that, Um, but uh, he has been totally uh, bowled over by the Russian leader and uh, the statements he made in terms of uh, of uh, believing that Vladimir Putin um, did not interfere in U.S. elections in 2016 against the solid evidence presented to the president by 17 U.S. intelligence agencies. It's just outrageous. Uh, we've gone from bad to worse in terms of uh, a president uh, and his foreign policy. And this one, it, it's it's unbelievable. And who knows what, what sort of secret deals he made in the two hours that were off the record. We're already finding out uh, some things that the Russians believe he agreed to, such as helping them reconstruct Syria, a nation that they had a big hand in destroying. So you know i am beyond frustrated this is absolutely outrageous yeah
0: i couldn't believe that a president of the united states would stand beside the president of russia who really is a gangster um and and really support vladimir putin and decry the information that, that as you said that he received from his own intelligence agencies this isn't something that was said behind closed doors this was said with open mics and open television cameras to the whole world. And that's that's absolutely stunning. Now, I, then I, I looked at what John Brennan said, the former director of the CIA, who has questions about his comportment also, trailing him around. But he called it, if I remember this correctly, he used the word traitorous. Would you yeah, go that far? The
3: word, yeah, he used the word treason.
0: Treason, that's right. Um, yeah.
3: Right. Yeah, and I'm not sure I would go that far. uh, But it certainly is, uh, is it makes you shake your head and and wonder what is happening at the the highest levels of of the US government. He's legitimizing Vladimir Putin, uh, a man who invaded another country in two different places, Crimea and eastern Ukraine, and is unapologetic for it. He invaded uh, Georgia as well. He's interfered in russian elections in the united states and western europe um, he has uh, killed uh, re- directly responsible for killing tens of thousands of people in syria with russian air, airstrikes you know this is a person whose bad behavior should be punished not celebrated and for some reason our president uh has has determined that somehow he's our friend or he's his friend at least um, and my my only hope is that the U.S. Congress and other branches of the U.S. government uh, can provide some sort of pushback against him, um, other than let this uh, let this uh, stand.
0: You obviously don't believe the, I should have said wouldn't, but by mistake I said would. Damage control. You know, it turns
3: it. it into a double negative and, and bad grammar, but it does, I don't it's, believe it in the heart. He's desperate. He, yeah, he he said exactly what he said. And, uh, you know, he believes that his followers will stand by him no matter what he says. And and, and incredibly, that seems to be the case. And, um, you know, we keep waiting for something to to be the last straw in his relationship with the American people. But nothing seems to be, at least for the 40 percent of Americans who support him. I mean, they, they, you know, they believe even what he said at the press conference. Well, he has some sort of secret plan and what was said in the two hours where the cameras weren't on, was, was more important, and we don't know what that is, so we need to give him space. Uh, what we do know is what he said in the press conference, and that was outrageous and, uh, I think, disrespectful to the intelligence agencies of the United States government.
0: How's this being accepted, do you think? Or I would imagine that you've had some correspondence by way of uh, email, at least, or maybe calls, or, you know, with with your fellow fellow former members of the military, U.S. military. How's this being accepted by by people who made serving the United States and putting their lives on the line as part of the military? How's it being accepted by them?
3: Now, the vast majority that I'm in touch with uh, are, are just uh, flabbergasted by uh, the president's behavior, even if they, they support him you know, or they're Republicans, um, uh, as I am. Uh, but uh, they simply cannot square his conduct in that press conference with anything that they believe in. Russia is not a friend of the United States. It's a strategic competitor at best and an enemy at worst. And um, and to simply throw uh, U.S. intelligence agencies under the bus as he's throwing the FBI and other branches of government and agencies under the bus, is it just makes one... Uh, you know, shake one, shake one's head, and and you know, hope for better days ahead. And the, I think the only thing actually that's going to change his behavior is is an election in which he gets trounced. But um, you know, that's the workings of the democratic system.
0: Mm-hmm. I remember when uh, Mr. Obama had made some moves that were highly questionable, and uh, you were talking to me at the time, and I asked you, how would a, a room full of military personnel uh, react and respond to if I ask this question, and I can't remember what the question was. But your answer was perfect, and I spoke to the, what the concerns were about of Barack Obama at the time. You said the serving, currently serving members of the military would get up and leave, and the retired members would tell you would answer your question. So today, we're now dealing with a situation where we have to look at. Trump versus Obama, uh, same military. Although Trump is putting more money into the military, um, look. Here's the question that has to be asked: Do you think somebody has pictures? This—that's what's being speculated. <laughs>
3: um, you know, who knows? I mean, it's it, the old cliche. It's but... Very. It's it, you know, it, there are speculations that uh, Russia and, and Putin have. Uh, various levers over Donald Trump, financial levers with uh, loans and so forth. And, you know, perhaps what Russia calls kompromat, which would be revealing photos and whatnot. I, you know, I don't know. I'm not going to speculate on that. Mm-hmm. All I can say is what his behavior indicates. And his behavior indicates that he is bowing to Putin's desires in in almost every instance. And um regardless of whether the Russian president has has a uh, uh, leverage over over Donald Trump. The fact is that um, it doesn't matter. He's 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 uh, bowled him over in terms of um, of policy choices that the president uh, is making from this point on. And I think it's dangerous to our our national security. It's, he, uh, you know, President Trump is fraying the uh, bonds of the alliances that keep the West together. He's praising enemies uh such as kim jong-un and uh president uh putin and and uh strategic competitors i might add you know president Xi of china um you know it, it's putting the united states in a place i never thought our nation would go as as an enemy to the to the free world in, in certain instances and it's just i i, I cannot understand it um i You know, I just don't know why he's going there. So I can only hope that the American people, um, you know, with the better angels of their nature, make different choices going forward in 2018 and 2020. We'll see.
0: Well, one Democratic congressman, as you know from uh, the Memphis area, appeared to be calling for a military insurrection. I, I can't see that happening in the United States, but... I don't
3: think that will not happen. That will not, that will not happen. And it goes to what uh, my response to that question, you know, a few years ago, the the, serving military will serve the president. It's their constitutional responsibility. Uh, They will not intervene. We have a system in in the U.S. government for uh, removing a president from office. It's called impeachment. And and that is the process that will be used if, if it is used, but the military will not get involved. I'm
0: certain about it. Colonel Mansour, it's always good talking to you. Thank you very much for the time. You wouldn't you have a better idea of what strategically of what's going on everywhere in uh, US military and government circles uh, than most anybody I could think of. So, really appreciate your time sir. Thanks, Roy. All the best. Peter Mansour, Colonel, former Colonel, former executive officer to General David Petraeus and the author of Surge, My Journey with General David Petraeus on the remaking of the Iraq War. He was no fan of Barack Obama. And clearly, Donald Trump concerns Colonel Mansour significantly. The Roy Green Show podcast is the only podcast
1: hosted by Roy Green.
3: Which makes sense. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or Google Play.
0: Imagine turning around and it ain't no Roddy and it ain't no Shepherd that's standing there or a Doberman or a combination of the three. It's a grizzly bear. And that grizzly bear is maybe five feet away from you. That is the kind of situation which would make your blood run cold. Nicole Rodriguez-Garcia and her boyfriend were hiking in the backcountry west of Whistler, British Columbia, on Tuesday of this week. When, Nicole, your boyfriend, and thank you for joining us, your boyfriend told you what?
4: Uh, He told me to turn around calmly because there was a bear behind me, and um, I honestly thought he was kidding, so I turned around super fast and, like, jokingly, and there was a grizzly bear about five feet away from me.
0: Oh, my God. Yeah,
4: so terrifying.
0: I mean, what's the thought? Is, is there a thought that goes through your mind, or is it just absolute terror?
4: Um, I, I honestly, my mind just went blank. I had no idea. Like, everything that you're told about bears and everything kind of just went out the window, and um, I was just frozen with fear. And then um, my boyfriend kind of brought me back and was just like, Like, Nicole, I want you to slowly back up towards me. Uh, And I did. So that's kind (laughs) of where that went after. And then um, Tom stepped in front of me um, to protect me. And he didn't know we had bear spray because it was in my backpack. Um, So he, like, yeah, he was protecting me with just a stick. And then I told him, like, babe, I, I have bear spray. And I handed it to him. So he then pointed at the bear and we kind of did everything. Like we were talking to the bear in a super monotone voice, like, please stop, please stop. But it just kept coming forward and we kept stepping back. And then it started to like, he started to walk a little faster. And then we, so we Tom was like trying to look big and we did put our hands over our head and maybe that wasn't the best thing to do. Um, but we, I like, we kind of forgot everything (laughs) Um,
0: well of course
4: (laughs) and then um, Tom did a little like warning spray and it got uh, in the bear's nose a little bit so he just sniffled a bit and then he just looked at Tom and then he was growling and he lunged at Tom and then that's when Tom unloaded the bear spray all over him Um, and then the bear just ran up the hill or ran up the mountain and what took us like an hour to like an hour and a half to scramble down, the bear was up in 20 seconds. So it was pretty, (laughs) pretty cool to see, (laughs) but couldn't believe that we were in that situation because we never, ever thought that we would.
0: the best sight is to see the bear disappearing up the hill, right?
4: Exactly.
0: (laughs) So you turn around, how about, was this, was the bear standing on all fours or was he on his back, on his hind legs when, when you turned around?
4: No, he was just walking super slow, so we must have stumbled up on him. Um, or he was and or he was just kind of seeing like, "Oh, who are these people or something. He didn't look like he was gonna attack us at all. Um, but it just, yeah, definitely a shock. <laughs> yeah.
0: So but when 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 Tom, your boyfriend, let him have the taste of the bear spray, he lunged at at Tom
4: yeah yeah yes. so he just sniffled a bit and then just kind of like he stopped and looked at Tom and then um lunged at him, and then probably probably got like an arm's two arms like away before Tom just like unloaded everything
0: <laughs> you know you you're you're so, to- so calm when you were ex- when you're when you're talking to me about this, and you were when we talked the day before yesterday, I don't know how you manage it, but but I'm so impressed um so so this bear. Uh, when he lunged toward Tom, could have gotten to your boyfriend really quickly because there was no real distance between you, right?
4: No, no. So I was like, Tom jumped back as well. Um, but I like, w- w- like before the bear, like, kind of got that full lunge, Tom, yeah, Tom was already spraying the bear spray and. We don't know what could have happened, but yeah, yeah it was terrifying for sure.
0: Has anybody who uh, who's an expert about uh, with with grizzlies uh, had any conversations with you or talked to you about what you did?
4: Um, I haven't. I haven't called any rangers or anything because we were in the back country. We weren't in any urban area, so we were definitely in its territory. Right. Um, yeah. So we were super far. We, we were doing a good like forty k hike, um, and then all we just we just kind of know all the information about bears when we lived in Lake Louise, right and we had Parks Canada come talk to us about uh, bear encounters because there's uh, tons there as well,
0: yeah, but you're both okay. Uh, yeah. you, you're, 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 are you sleeping okay?
4: Oh yeah, no, we're com- we're good. We're a little shook We kind of take bear spray everywhere with us if we're just going to the beach I or... yeah,
0: don't blame you. <laughs> so here's the dumb here's what when we were talking the other day, I said to you, the dumb question people are going to ask you for the rest of your life is, did you get any pictures?
4: <laughs> <laughs> no, we didn't. But we got we, like we we took I took my phone out when the bear was up the mountain and we were kind of running down. Yeah. Um like uh, and I just got like a little zoomed in photo, but that was about
0: it. Well, I'm so glad you're okay, and I'm so glad that Tom's okay. And mm-hmm. that bear you'll never forget the bear, and the bear's never gonna forget you guys either.
4: No, no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Take good care, Nicole. Thanks for talking Thank to you us very today.
4: Much. <laughs> okay. Thank
0: you. Bye bye. Visit Apple Podcasts or Google Play now and sign up for the Roy Green Show podcast, one hundred percent free. free.
3: 10%
0: Last weekend, we spoke with Michelle Rempel. We speak with uh, the Calgary Nose Hill Member of Parliament quite regularly, the Conservative Member of Parliament, an immigration critic, because so much is going on in our borders, and there are so many people coming into Canada who really have no business coming into this country. And uh, our Prime Minister has resorted to calling them irregular, and now that's become the favorite term of other members of the Liberal government and some in media. If you look it up, irregular um, immigrant really has no meaning. I uh, I checked it last weekend. I brought the definition with me. It's one of these, yeah, maybe nobody really uses it that much, was the paraphrasing of the definition. It was difficult to find anybody who really understood what that's supposed to mean. So they call them irregular. It's illegal if you're entering the country without any documentation, and I know, I know. They're taken for investigation and, and, and held and their bona fides are being checked, which is going to cost us money, Canadians. And if you say that, then you're a racist and a bigot uh, because you're not supposed to. If I say that we're a small country population-wise and we don't have uh, limitless resources, then I'm going to be told that I'm just hard-hearted toward people who need to come to Canada. It's just utter nonsense. And what it is, is manipulation of what I say. And I don't listen to you. If you try to manipulate what I say, I don't listen to you. If you call me names, I don't listen to you. I will not respond to you. I'm not going to do you the courtesy of debating with you something that's not worth debating. Now I didn't get up on the wrong side of the bed. I mean, uh, what's that old line? I was born at night, but I wasn't born last night. Anyway, we've spoken to Michelle Rempel on a number of occasions about what's going on at the border. She's doing a magnificent job of keeping us informed and keeping the government pressure on the federal government because Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Husson and the entire liberal government are misplaying this dramatically, and so are some people in our media. A story today Canadian press saying that uh, people who are coming across the border only want to do good by Canada and uh, what else are they going to say? I mean that's not even a news story but it's being carried everywhere and so yeah well, what else are you going to say? Michelle Rempel is uh, back with us the Conservative Party immigration critic. Michelle thank you very much for the time. Um, do we where do we start today?
1: Um, Well, I guess as an update, uh, the government has agreed to my request for emergency meetings on this issue, and those will be held in Ottawa on Tuesday. Um, I found out about that. Actually, as I I was getting on the plane back to Calgary last night, so I'm turning around and coming back again tomorrow morning, um, but we will have three ministers in front of our committee and also Immigration Minister Lisa McLeod from Ontario uh, so hopefully we'll start getting some answers.
0: So that she's the immigration minister who's un-Canadian.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's important to talk about where the debate has gone in the last couple of weeks because we've heard the liberals really amp up the rhetoric around, you know, it's verboten to use the term illegal. Yet, uh, you know, I posted a video a couple of days ago that showed how Trudeau, his immigration minister, the public safety minister, They've actually used that term themselves before, even in our parliamentary committee. So I think that this is because they are trying to shift the debate away from how we do immigration uh, into something that is very divisive because they don't want scrutiny on their record. And I just think that that's so wrong. I I mean, you've raised, Roy, you just raised a good point. Uh, You know, again, uh, we had officials in front of our committee that said, look, it is illegal Across from the United States into Canada, an official, unofficial point of entry. A court, like it's illegal per the Customs Act, but when somebody claims asylum through because of the loophole in the Safe Third Country Agreement, um, all all that means is that like charges can't be pressed right then, right? Because of asylum, so it is the act is still illegal. But I don't want to talk about that word. Right? The reason why I'm calling these meetings is because. You know, having 31,000 people unexpectedly enter the country and claim asylum, it's had a huge impact on our ability to process asylum claims quickly. Um, the Immigration Refugee Board is really oversubscribed. Um, it's had a huge impact on provincial social programs. We see the Toronto, Ottawa uh, homeless shelter capacity being oversubscribed, food bank usage. The government of Quebec has said that it is no longer providing daycare slots, I believe for the children of people seeking asylum because that system's becoming oversubscribed. I mean, there are significant impacts on the system. And then this week, Justin Trudeau appointed a minister specifically for illegal border crossing. So we're now seeing the the permanence, like Justin Trudeau is making this situation permanent and putting a permanent bureaucracy around it. And I just don't think that that's right, given the fact that we're in a huge deficit situation Canadians' taxes are increasing, and I think it's really a fair conversation to ask the Prime Minister how we're, A, going to pay for all of this, and B, if this is the way that we want to do humanitarian immigration, which is to put people on buses, unplanned to homeless shelters, um, instead of planning for integration with a more reasonable amount of people over time. Uh, from the world's most vulnerable communities. So that's the purpose for these meetings, and I certainly won't let them in. Like, I mean, they can call me all the names that they want. Um, I'm very comfortable with where we have taken this debate because we're asking them questions that they don't want to answer that they should answer. And, uh, you know, there's your summary for the week on a very, the very busy week on this issue for me.
0: And, Michelle, the responsibility of any federal government is to manage the affairs of the people of the country not the affairs of the people who are trying to get into the country illegally, although you have to deal with it when it takes place, but you should have policies that represent, ultimately, the best interests of the people of the country. At the same time, you evaluate quickly, efficiently, the, any, any asylum claims, and then you act expeditiously on the arrangement that's, or at least the decision that's been arrived at. What you say, what Trudeau's done is he's now made this a mainstream Canadian issue when it really should not be.
1: Well, look, I I want to be very clear. My my party supports immigration when it's done in a planned and orderly fashion, and that includes humanitarian immigration. This is why you and I have chatted about the initiative that my party undertook to bring Yazidi, uh, genocide survivors to Canada because these are some of the world's most vulnerable people. These are the people our humanitarian immigration system should be helping. The whole situation at Roxham Road raises questions about how many people, how many humanitarian immigrants Canada is in a position to be able to support
0: exactly. from a
1: social program perspective and I, we have to have that conversation. Like how are we budgeting for it? Where where are we going to live? Because the last thing you want is people to come into Canada and then not integrate into the social and economic fabric of the country. But it also, you know, begs the question of who we're prioritizing to come into the country. And this is why the Safe Third Country Agreement, and that agreement was negotiated by a liberal government, by the way, exists. Because we have made a a decision at the time as a country to say, look, if somebody has reached the United States of America, they are no longer fleeing persecution. And... So this is, I I maintain, and you don't have to take my word for it, Justin Trudeau stood up in the House of Commons and said the United States is still a safe third country. I believe the U.S. is a safe third country. So to me, I don't think we should be creating a permanent bureaucracy and spending hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, um, to prioritize people who have already reached uh, a country that most people in the world would you know, give their left eye to get into. Right.
0: Exactly. Uh,
1: Versus, you know, we're seeing seven year wait time for privately sponsored refugees who are languishing in UNHCR, United Nations camps uh, in some of the worst parts of the world. So I just think it's a question of priorities. And, you know, I think where we're at right now is this tipping point where the public has woken up to the fact that Justin Trudeau has not been able to manage the situation appropriately. They are demanding answers for it. But the people that, you know, raise their head and kind of step above the fence and go, hey, you know, how are you paying for this? Who are we prioritizing and under what situations? The Liberals are throwing these racist, xenophobic, un-Canadian, I was called hysterical this week, Uh, I was called a xenophobe, I was called racist, um, I, I think you would be hard-pressed giving my voting record to associate any labels like that with myself. Um, given the work that I've done on genocide, on protecting uh, the rights of sexual minorities in, in persecuted uh, areas around the world, the questions that I'm asking are very simple, and they're, they're, my, they're the reason why you pay my salary, boy. How are we spending taxpayer money? Is it the most appropriate use of taxpayer money? How are we budgeting for this? And then who are we prioritizing for entry into the country through our humanitarian streams? Those are very reasonable questions. And I think that we're now at the point where we just need to push through this bullying that we're seeing uh, from the Liberal Party. And, you know, it's it's assorted minions. And just saying, look, um, we want immigration, but we also want answers. And uh, I'm not going
0: to let up on that. So no, are- and they, uh, Michelle, they've turned it into an election issue, quite frankly, and they're angling toward m- that even more. And this all began with Mr. But well, didn't all begin, but it certainly was given a push by Justin Trudeau's ill-advised tweet in 2015. And when he essentially said to the world, come to Canada. We cannot accept and we cannot, we can't look after uh, the world. We have limited resources. We're a fairly small population in a large country, but we, we cannot look after everyone and the things issues have to be prioritized. And you're right, there are and I've said this many times over the years. there are people who need us, who are in refugee camps internationally, who've been languishing in these refugee camps for decades, for generations of families. They need help. Why don't we go there to the refugee-producing nations and find the people who really need us and bring them to Canada and provide them what we what they need because we already know they will meet the requirements of definition of refugee.
1: Yeah, so just three quick points. Uh, first, I was in Uganda about two months ago, and I visited uh, some refugee settlements and camps uh, near the Democratic Republic of Congo's border, where there's a lot of tribal warfare right now, and 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 a pull into Uganda. Uganda is actually uh, one of the biggest host nations for refugees in the world. Uh, you know, and I, I saw some uh, pretty deplorable living conditions, but the you know aid work on the ground doing the best they can, and and fr- and frankly, the government of Uganda doing a lot of work to support. Uh, in a very positive way, the refugee population there. But I met with uh, a very senior government official from their foreign ministry, and he made that point. He said, look, the world, we don't expect the world to resettle all of these refugees, and we know that many of them don't want to leave the area. I mean, going to Canada is, you know, a big deal. And so the question becomes, how do countries like Canada support uh, efforts to... um, maintain refugees for, for short periods of time in, in host countries. And that's a discussion that I think the world has to have. The second thing is, um, you know, the reality is you were talking about how do we select people. We rely on the United Nations to select refugees to come to Canada to resettle. Um, the, the, there are two streams you can enter as a humanitarian uh, refugee. You can either claim asylum having already reached Canada by yourself as we're seeing at Roxham Road, or you can go to a UNHCR camp, be selected from there, and then come to Canada. But the problem is, is oftentimes some of the world's most vulnerable people, they don't have the option of being able to afford a plane ticket to Canada, right? As we saw with a lot of the Nigerian cohort that were coming in, the government had to go and stop very recently. Um, they, they can't, they can't, you know, even leave their countries to get to a camp. So, Uh, This is where, like, the Yazidi genocide, many Yazidis could not make it into the selection process for Canada because they couldn't get to a camp. Mm -hmm. So we also have to look at how, if we're pushing the United Nations for reform on its settlement processes. But the last point that I want to make is tangential. Um, And that is, I think this is unfair, what's happening in Canada right now to a lot of new Canadians who have come to Canada legally, uh, either humanitarian immigration, uh, through um, humanitarian immigration streams or um, through economic streams, and are now waiting for years and years and years to have you know, their, their family be reunited with them. Many of them are working really hard in Canada to build our country and to build a new life here. I've from so many different groups from the iranian community who have all sorts of delayed applications for permanent residency uh, many of whom are very highly skilled um you know the filipino community many of whom are are active in the live and caregiver program in canada have difficulty getting their permanent residencies or reunited with their children they're going you know the government can say that they're processing applications in different streams all they want but the reality is they're choosing to prioritize hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of resources to expediting the claims of people who are coming through Canada uh, at the U.S. border illegally, okay. as opposed to people that are coming into regular streams. And I agree with them. I think that's unfair.
0: Michelle, thank you for joining us. Uh, you'll have the next parliamentary meeting on Tuesday, so I suspect we'll talk again next week. It'll weekend.
1: be a big day. It'll okay. Be a big day. So we'll guys, look
0: for it. Care. We'll look for the news. Thanks so much for joining us today. Take care. Bye-bye. Michelle Rempel. North Hill, Calgary Conservative Member of Parliament, immigration critic. So Tuesday will be another major day on the issue of border crossing. Thanks for listening. The Roy Green Show is available wherever you find podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you liked what you heard, tell a friend and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.